Welcome to the City Alliance Church Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our messages. Our prayer is that you would listen, learn, and be inspired to love God, love others, and serve the world. Subscribe and share these messages to bless others. Here's this week's message. My name is Nathan. I am one of the pastors here, and we're so excited you're with us as we are kicking off a brand new series during, you know, Valentine's Day month and Relationship Month, which is Our Imperfect Family. I just want to say this, whether you are single or married or single again, there's going to be something for you in this series because we want to, again, invest in the families in our church. When you read scripture, the primary metaphor for the church those of us that are gathered here today, is family. Because in some ways, we all know what it's like to be a father or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle. We, we, we kind of know what that's like. In fact, one of the early church leaders is a guy named Paul, and he talks about the implications here, what it means to be part of the family of God. He says this in Galatians 6.10. He says, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. And if you can think about it, uh, for the most part, if there's any group of individuals that has a greater influence on who you are today, it's your families. It's your parents. They have, in many ways, kind of impacted how you see the world, how you interact with others, even how you view and how you interact with God. But one of the things that we experience in our society or in culture right now is that there's a lot of pressure on families. One of the kind of the undertow messages in our culture is that, you know, hey, it's really about you. You do you. You got to put yourself first, all of those kind of things. But when you're a part of a family, it's about serving one another. At times, we are called to sacrifice for the sake of others. Also, in our culture, there's a lot of false expectations for what a family looks like. You know, maybe like that video, you know, you thought, okay, family, you know, it's, a, it's two parents and kids. But oftentimes, we have so many single parent families in our culture and in our church community. We have families that are blended families. We have families that have foster or are fostering and are adopting and all these different things. And oftentimes there's this kind of um, unspoken assumption that this is what a family is and these are the things that aren't, but that's just not true. And then also there's the stage of life stuff, right? When you're single, life is very different than when you're married. And when you're married with small kids, things are very different than when you're married with teenagers. And so in your families, you're always kind of navigating all the different dynamics and all the changes. It's very fluid. And and if you're parenting kids right now, you know, like, man, they're going through a different phase right now. They're going through a different stage. I've got to readjust my parenting, things like that. And then there's what I like to call the pressure of perfection. You know what I'm talking about? Where if you go on social media, it seems like all the pictures you see about families, like they're all perfect. Like, they're all, like, you know, like, doing these fun, like, TikTok dances, or they all look like they have it all together, all their ducks are in the row. Like, no one ever takes a picture of, like, you fighting with your partner, do they? And post it on Instagram? Or your kids crying with, like, all of the mess in the background? Like, no, we kind of curate our images because we want to kind of put forth this image of perfection. But it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting trying to keep that up. And, in fact, I want to try to take some of that pressure off of you this morning. Because here's what I think God wants me to say to many of you, and those of you that are perfectionists or Enneagram ones, this is going to be really, really hard, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, ready? It's okay not to be okay. In fact, turn to the person next to you and tell them it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. 
In fact, one of the images that we have of the church is that the church is called to be a hospital for broken people. Where we can kind of come and bring our brokenness and bring our pain and bring our sorrow and bring our wounds to Jesus. And what Jesus does is he transforms our pain. He transforms our sorrow and he heals us. But we become wounded healers, bringing that healing to others, to those who've maybe gone through things that we have experienced. And I I loved what Dr. Nate Wood said last week, if you were here in the panel. He says, it's not about perfection. It's about progression over perfection. It's about progress. It's about taking steps forward to getting a little bit better in whatever area of life that God is calling you to grow in. And when we give up perfection as our goal, if we can take perfection and say, it's not about that, it's about progression, you know what we find? You know what we receive? We receive a beautiful gift, and that is the gift of grace. We have grace. We can receive this gift of God at work in us, inviting us to something bigger. A couple years ago, the actor Chris Pratt. How many guys remember Chris Pratt from like Parks and Rec or uh, all of the Jurassic World movies, Fallen Kingdom, Dominion, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know all of them. But a couple years ago, he's at the MTV Music Movie Awards and he gets this award uh, for the Generation Award. And so he gives what he calls his elder millennial speech. Where are my elder millennials at? You guys don't make any noise. You can make some noise, elder millennials. It's okay. There you go. All right. All right. So, so, oh, wow. I got some passion there. There we go. <laughs> well, he gives a speech to Gen Z and Gen Alpha, those that are coming after him. This is, I don't know if you ever had a chance to hear this speech. Like, it's amazing. It's, he, goes from any, every, he goes from, like, here's how you feed your dog medicine. Like, very practical. Um, if you're at a party, here's how you poop where the smell doesn't, like, go throughout the whole party. All very important things. But then all of a sudden, he starts talking about the soul. He starts talking about God. He starts talking about prayer. And then the most surprising thing for me in this speech is he actually gets pretty close to talking about the power of grace. Check this out. Nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You are imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift And like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood, do not forget it. Woo! Couple quick things. I I, I don't know where Chris Pratt is in his relationship with God. I I don't. Maybe the one correction I would say, hey, Chris, I wouldn't say that we were designed imperfect. I think that's a result of sin. Brokenness coming into our world. But everything else, man, that's pretty spot on, isn't it? The grace isn't something that we can do for ourselves. It's not anything that we can do to fix. We can't fix the things in our lives. It is something that Jesus does in us, and it was paid for by his blood, by his death and by his resurrection. We have grace. And so as we enter into this series, here's what I want to remind us. Give yourself grace. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be broken and to be wounded, because when it comes to talking about our imperfect family, it kind of brings up all sorts of pain, all sorts of fears, all sorts of insecurities, especially today, because today I want to talk about what I call the Foo Factor. No, we're not going to talk about the Foo Fighters, even though we could, but that's a different sermon. But Foo basically stands for family of origin, 
family of origin. So, so when we talk about our imperfect families, we kind of got to go to the source. And when the Bible talks about family of origin or the foo, I'm going to go back and forth and use those different terms. Uh, it usually talks about three generations. So not just your immediate family uh, or your parents, but actually your grandparents, these three generations and how they impact us. Now, I know that for many of you, as soon as we talk about foo, there's three types of people that I'm talking to. There's one group that says, bro, we don't need to talk about them. We just need to go forward. Like, you know, doesn't Paul say to forget what is behind and press on towards the future? Like, we, we don't need to talk about my family of origin, my parents or my grandparents. And then there's some of you that are like, my parents were perfect. I mean, look how perfect I am. Like, we don't need to talk about them. Like, they were great, and they did some awesome things. And I think that we can have that kind of feeling as well. And, but then I think for some of us, the mention of family of origin, we start to sweat a little bit. Because some of you are like, Nathan, I, I can't go back there. It's too painful. You don't know what happened. You don't know what was said. You don't know what was done. I'm not ready to go there. And, and if that's where some of you are at today, I just want to say it's okay. It, it's okay. You don't need to go there yet. Jesus is going to take you on that journey in his time frame. But we need to understand this when it comes to our family of origin, how it intersects with our faith and our spiritual life, is that your past shapes your present. Okay? And that's good and bad. There are some great things that you have that your family of origin has handed you and that you could take and run with, but there's also some negative things that hold you back, that trip you up, that even impact the way you engage with things spiritually. But what's interesting is what we found in the latest research is that it's actually hits us on a biochemical level. Researchers did a study where they studied uh, various Holocaust survivors, and they found that there was a stress hormone that many Holocaust survivors had because they were in concentration camps. But here's what's interesting. Their kids, who were never in these camps, nor, and their grandkids who weren't in these camps, all had the same stress hormone follow them down to three generations. Now, what's interesting to me as a pastor is that this isn't just kind of a new phenomenon. This is actually something that the ancient world has known for a long, long time. In fact, we see this in the Bible. In Exodus 20, verse 5, it says this, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. I always think it's interesting when science finally catches up to Scripture, don't you? But psychologists call this concept multi-generational transmission, but the Bible has a name for this. It's called generational sin. Now, I'll be honest, when I first read that verse and I learned about this concept, I was like, yo, that's not fair. God, that's not fair. Like, wh why should I have to deal with the issues that my parents dealt with me? Like, God, why are you going all MMA on the grandkids because of, of what their parents did? Like, God, that's not fair. That's messed up. But when you kind of do a little bit more digging into this, what it's actually talking about is the consequences of sin. That is what gets passed down from generation to generation to generation if it's left unchecked. And maybe you've seen this. You know, we actually see these sometimes in broken homes and in broken families. We see unhealthy behaviors and patterns repeat, things like divorce. Their grandparents got divorced, their parents got divorced, and now you're looking at a divorce. Or, you know, sibling rivalry, like, you know, my uncle and my dad didn't get along, and now that's happening with my siblings, and we see that keep repeating. We can see that with, uh, you know, with, with pregnancy out of wedlock, abuse, broken relationships. These things have a way of repeating from one generation to the next. 
And sometimes we think, okay, now I'm a Christian now. I gave my life to Jesus. Like, shouldn't all that stuff be fixed? I don't have to worry about any of that. And while it's true, you've been rescued from the power of sin. You've been rescued from the power of darkness. Praise God. You are a new creation. But here's the thing. You can have Jesus in your heart, but grandpa in your bones. Here's what I mean by that. Is Jesus can be in your heart, but there's still a part of your formation as a disciple where you've got to take off those patterns. This is Ephesians 5. You've got to take off those patterns and those behaviors and those broken things and put on, the, put on who Jesus is. New patterns, new behaviors, new assumptions that come through Christ. And just as there can be generational sin, there is also generational blessing. Some of you here know what that's like. The reason why you're a follower of Jesus, the reason why your family is as strong as it is, is because there was a generation or two before you that said, we're going to follow Jesus. We are going to stop trauma in our generation so the ones afterwards don't have to deal with this. And I love the promise that God gives us in the next verse of Exodus. It says this, but I have, I lavish unfailing love for how many generations? A thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So generational sin can go up to three or four generations. How far does generational blessing go? Thousands. God lavishes his love down to thousands of generations. That is the power of this. So while it's true, your past shapes your present. What happened to you growing up shapes how you see the world and how you interact with it and even how you see God. But here's the thing. Your present doesn't determine your future. Amen? Your present doesn't determine your future. And the Bible shows that generational sins can be broken. You can break the power of generational sins, of repeated patterns. In fact, you can release generational blessings for the next generation. You guys that are in college, you're in this place where you can find those patterns and break them for your kids and the generations that come after that. In fact, we see this happen in the life of a man named Joseph. And that's who we're going to talk about today. Uh, now, this is not Joseph, the adopted dad of Jesus. This is Joseph who's got the dope drip, you know, the coat of many, many colors. The tech team said not to say dope drip, but I did it anyway, guys. I'm sorry. I'm so disobedient. But, you know, Joseph probably would have been a TikTok influencer. He's got all, you know, like for menswear, things like that. But he, but he had some pretty big issues. He had some big, pretty big problems. He was born into a pretty broken family. But yet, this is a family that God was at work in. Can can I just say something? If you're here and you're part of a broken family, can I just tell you that God is at work in that broken family? In some way, all of our families are broken, but God is not done with your family of origin. Let me show you what God does in Jacob and Joseph's family, and you'll see what I mean. So starting at verse, in chapter 37, it says this, When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. So he was a shepherd. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. So his father's got multiple wives. Remember that detail. We're going to come back to that. But Joseph reported on his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe that his brothers are jealous of. Now, when we first find Joe in this story, he's kind of cocky, he's kind of arrogant, he's, you know, a 17-year-old, he thinks he's got all the answers, but what we see is there's some major problems in Joe's foo, okay, his family of origin. The first pattern that we see is favoritism. We see this literally in the passage where Jacob says, Joseph is my favorite son. But, you know, Jacob, his parents were this couple named Isaac and Rebekah. 
and they both had favorites. Isaac, Jacob's dad, his favorite was his brother Esau. Rebekah's favorite was Jacob. And so that caused some tension. But then if you go a generation above, you've got Abraham, and he's got a favorite son, which is Isaac. And so we literally see favoritism start to kind of work its way through the family line. But the other thing we see here is also is dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional marriages in particular. We see this like, you know, for instance, Jacob has four wives, which is a problem, okay? It doesn't matter what time and period in history you live in. In fact, uh, you know, Mark Twain once got into this debate with this, with this Mormon. At the time, Mormons had these plural marriages, and, and the Mormon was like, I want you to show me where in the Bible it says you can't have more than one wife, Mark Twain. Mark Twain you know, doesn't miss a beat, and he goes, you shall not serve two masters. That's where it is. <laughs> I was like, all right, there you go. But, you know, you see, you know, the plural marriages in Jacob's life, which is a problem. You go a generation up, Isaac and Rebekah, they've had a rocky marriage from the start. And then Abraham and Sarah, like, you know, they're, they're waiting on God to bring a promised child to them. And then Sarah has a bright idea. Hey, Abraham, why don't you get my assistant pregnant? And that way we can get this thing going, which is a bad idea, okay? Like, so you see all these dysfunctional relationships that get passed down from one generation to the next, and, you know, like I said, Joseph gets this beautiful coat uh, of many colors, and his brothers are jealous, and his brothers are angry. And so what they decide to do is they decide to take Joseph, throw him in a pit, take his coat, cover it in blood, and then tell their dad, Dad, I think Joseph died. This is what we found. At which point Jacob just freaks out because his favorite son has died. And, and right here we see deception and secrecy that's passed down from one generation to the next. I mean, they literally have a fake funeral for their brother, and they keep the secret. Or can't tell anybody. Some of you guys know what it's like to have family secrets. That you can't go here, you can't talk about these kind of things, and now these brothers have this secret, and all this guilt, and all this shame is kind of building. And not only that, you see this in the life of Jacob. In fact, Jacob's name literally means con man. I mean, literally, his sons are watching him lie like a rug their entire childhood. Maybe Jacob didn't teach him to lie, but more is caught than taught, right? And you go to the generation above, and Isaac is lying about his wife. He goes, oh, that's my sister. Don't bother, you know. And then Abraham does the same thing. So we see lies and deception and secrecy that gets passed down from generation to generation. But here's what I want to say, and I want to say this again, is that God is at work even in the most broken of situations. Amen? God's at work. And we see God at work in this really dysfunctional foo. In fact, if you want to read the entire story of Joseph, it's, it's pretty big. You can start in chapter 37, it goes to chapter 50, but I'm just going to look at some highlights here. But, you know, after Joseph's brothers throw him in this pit, they decide, hey, why don't we make some money off of him and sell him into slavery? And some of you are like, that's a great idea. I can sell my sibling into slavery. Some of you middle school boys are up there thinking that's a great idea. So they sell him into slavery, and, you know, he does actually pretty well. He, he sold to this guy named Potiphar, and he actually becomes the most trusted servant in Potiphar's household, and things are going great. Joseph's like, I can start new. This is awesome. But then all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife gets thirsty. She looks him up, and she's like, all right, let's get this on. Joseph's like, no way. She accuses him of rape, and basically he gets thrown in prison, loses reputation, loses everything. 
After that happens, he's in prison, and then he sees these two officials from Pharaoh's palace. These are, this is the king. And, and they're like, hey, listen, like, you, we've got these dreams. They're kind of weird. And Joseph's like, oh, bro, I can help you with your dream. Tell me your dream. And, and he hears the dreams. He goes, all right, here's what your dreams mean. You're going to go back to work for Pharaoh. You are going to get executed. And, they, and it happened like, that way. And when the guy's about to go back to the palace, he's like, uh, can you tell Pharaoh, kind of put in a good word for me, just to let him know that, hey, I, so I can get out of here? Forgets about Joseph for two years. So Pharaoh gets, has some bad dreams. And Pharaoh's like, man, I can't figure out what these dreams are. And the guy's like, oh, wait, I know a guy. I got a dream guy. Let me go get him. And so Joseph comes out of jail. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh's like, I'm going to put you in charge of famine relief in the entire nation of Egypt. You're going to be in charge of making sure that we have enough when a famine comes, not just for Egypt, but for the entire region. That's what Joseph does. He actually becomes the most powerful man in Egypt next to Pharaoh. And he comes up with this entire famine relief program, and they have plenty of food, the people are okay, the people are actually coming from other regions because they have a surplus. In fact, you know who comes from other regions? His brothers. His brothers come, and they can't recognize Joseph because it's been 13 years. And so Joseph is kind of trying to test them, kind of feel them out to see where they're at. And eventually he gets to this point where he, he, he just can't hold it in anymore. He's got to tell them who he is. And this is where we kind of land on this passage in chapter 45 where it says this. It says this, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. I mean, I, I can't imagine what these brothers were like. You know, they're, they're there, they're trying to figure out who's this powerful guy, you know, he, why does he want our attention? And all of a sudden he goes, I'm your brother, Joseph. They're like, what? No, 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 we sold Joseph. Like, he would never be here. But Joseph's like, all right, come, come closer. It says this, please come closer. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph. So can, you, can you see, can you recognize me now? Your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. So he's like, hey, come, come close. Like, I, maybe you can't recognize me. And, and they come close, and they're starting to recognize this, and they're like, oh, crap. This is the guy that we, like, threw in a pit and sold into slavery. Now he's the most powerful man in Egypt. Like, what's, what's he going to do to us? What's he going to do? But yet Joseph understood that God was doing something greater. And somehow, Joseph got to this place where he could completely forgive his brothers and say, don't be angry with yourselves. I don't know about you, but it would take a lot for me to get to that point. But look what he says here in verse 6. He sees the bigger picture. He says, The famine that was ravaged, that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. Sometimes when we are in a situation that we're like, God, where are you in this? Like, God, why are you allowing this to happen the better question is, God, what are you doing in this situation? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to bring out of me and heal in me? Joseph understood the what in order to understand the why. And he goes on, and he sums up 
everything in this next verse. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of Egypt. I want you to notice something. There were three generations of lying and deception that got passed down. There were three generations of favoritism, three generations of secrecy, bad relationships, that all of a sudden through Joseph, broken. Joseph stopped the broken patterns and the traumas of his family. How did he do that? Because here's the thing that we need to understand. Because the stakes for this are high. Because pain that's not transformed gets transferred. In fact, repeat these words after me because I think these are important for us to internalize. Pain that's not transformed is transferred. So if we do not allow the pain of, that we've experienced from our families of origin to be transformed, they will be transferred to those that come after us. Because here's the reality, all of us, even in the best of families, we have some stuff, don't we? Because here's the thing, whether you realize it or not, you are actually been, you've been parented by a bunch of sinners. You, in turn, are parenting a bunch of sinners if you're a parent. And so you are going to receive some stuff that you are going to pass on to your kids, some knowingly and some unknowingly. But you could be the generation that says no more. We are going to stop this generational sin and release generational blessing instead. And that's what Joseph shows us how to do it. Because the reality is, because we're sinners, because we're broken, we're going to pass some brokenness off to our kids. But we can pass less brokenness off to them. We can teach them better coping mechanisms of how to handle the brokenness in the world that we live in. And Joseph shows us how to do this. But I know for me, like, what, what I find really challenging about this is I come from three generations of volcanic anger in my household. Which is funny, because most people, when they meet me, they're like, Nathan, you seem so chill. Like, you don't seem really angry, or, you know, you, you don't really blow up. And, you know, I, I had a grandfather who I never met who his anger was so bad, people literally had to leave the house because of it and, like, like move out. Uh, my dad, he would blow up in his anger. And, you know, the, what I decided one day when my dad blew up is, like, I am never going to blow up. I'm not going to do that. I am going to be chill. I'm going to be nice. I'm not going to get angry. And here's what I've been learning as I've been seeing a counselor and even just being married to my wife is I don't get angry. I'm always angry. Like the Incredible Hulk. It's always there. But my anger doesn't blow up. It goes inward. So sometimes when I get angry with someone, I'll blame myself. Like, oh, maybe I did something wrong and I'll push it down. And what happens is it comes out in critical comments. It comes out when I, when I want to be, you know, like, through, oh, I'm just messing around, I'm just you and humor. No, I'm angry. They're passive-aggressive actions. And so, as I'm becoming more aware of this, I'm actually seeing those patterns even in my own kids. Oh my gosh, like, I'm passing down to them my own trauma, my own pain. And so part of the work by the way, this work takes your entire life. This is what's called discipleship, putting off the old patterns and putting on the patterns that Christ has given us. It's a lifelong process. And so I want to show us four things that we can start to put into effect, four tools to help you in this process of transformation, transforming your trauma so it's no longer transferred. And the first is this, is to trust in God's guidance. 
You see, oftentimes we can start to blame our parents for our issues. I don't know if you know anyone like that or, you know, maybe your neighbor. But, but the reality is we need to realize that God has placed us in our families of origin. Like, he's done it sovereignly. In Genesis 45, verse 8, here's what Joe says. He says, So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all Egypt. You see, Joseph had this place where he was like, you know what, my family put me in this situation, and he really could have just been like, they screwed my life up. Everything's a mess. It's their fault. But Joseph didn't do that. Instead, he made a choice, and I think this is key for all of us. He chose to trust God even when he didn't understand. He chose to trust God even though his circumstances didn't make any sense. He chose to trust in what theologians call the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty simply means that God, everything that God wants, his purposes all come about, and he uses all of our decisions and bad decisions and all the mess of our lives to bring about his divine purposes. See, Joseph believed that, all right, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why I'm in a pit right now. I don't understand why I'm in jail right now. But I'm going to choose to trust in you, even if my circumstances aren't working out the way I'd like them to. He made a choice to trust God. Because here's the thing. God is allowing good and bad to flow into your life to develop your character. To transform the pain you experience into something that God will use later to bless others and to stop generational sin. And generation blessing flow from that. That's the first thing we see here, is to trust in God's guidance. And the second thing is to grieve your losses. You know, usually when we think of grieving, we think of when someone passes away. We, we, you know, we feel sad, we mourn, we grieve their passing. But there's actually things in life that happen that make us grieve. We experience so many losses. I mean, think about the life of Joseph. He experienced the loss of his family. He experienced the loss of his freedom, he, the loss of his culture, he experienced the loss of his parents, all these different losses. He lost his reputation. And so many of these things he had to grieve because he was never going to get them back. But yet, what we see in the story of Joseph all throughout is he takes time to grieve, literally weeping. In fact, one of these instances we see in verse 2, it says this. It says, Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of, his, of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. Can I ask, when was the last time you wept from your brokenness? When was the last time that you allowed yourself to feel the loss? Maybe you were forced to grow up too quickly. Maybe there was hypocrisy in your home. And maybe it was hurt that you've experienced in the church or from family or from friends. When was the last time you allowed yourself to feel those wounds? You didn't push it down, you didn't minimize it, but you said, I was hurt. This is painful. This is how God brings healing to us. This is how we experience his grace when we grieve our losses. Now, sometimes we like, oh, you know what? You know, God works all things for his good. Like, it's all going to work out. We know that's true, but we still are called to lament in pain. To lament our losses, our disappointments. That's how God enlarges our souls, enlarges our compassion and where we are able to better receive what he has for us. And the third insight here is we need to rewrite your script with scripture. You, you see, Joseph had a script that he could have internalized. And what I, what I say by script, you know, if, you're, you know, if you are ever an actor, you get a script, and you have to kind of 
act out your part. All of us received a script from our family of origins. Like, you know, here's how I act, and here's how I react to things. But, you know, Joseph had a script that he could have gotten too. You know, he's thrown to a pit. He's like, my family doesn't want me. God must not want me. He must be mad at me. If my family doesn't want me and God doesn't want me, maybe I'm just worthless. Maybe I deserve everything that I'm getting. But Joseph didn't let that script form him. Instead, he let the script of the gospel form him. He kind of preached the gospel to himself, and that's why he was able to come to this, uh, he was able to forgive his brothers by saying this, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here, ahead of you, to preserve your lives. Joseph rewrote the story, and that enabled him to trust in God. But how do we do that? How do we rewrite the broken scripts that we've been handed down to? Well, a couple years ago, a friend of mine from college, he wrote this book. Um, it kind of became a big deal in some circles. It's called The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Lotus. And in it, he actually has a section of how do you rewrite this faulty scripts that we've been given? And he says, hey, here's five questions for you to work through. The first one is, what happened? The second is, what did I feel? The third is, what is the story I'm telling myself? The fourth is, what does the gospel say? And what counter-instinctual action is needed? So that's a lot. Let me maybe break this down. Because I've actually found this to be incredibly helpful, incredibly practical. You can either take a picture of this on your phone, or you can, you know, we'll put it on social media if you find this helpful. But I actually use this probably like on a daily basis, definitely like on a weekly basis. When any kind of stuff, like I'm on Instagram and I'm triggered by something, I'm like, what happened? Uh, what did I feel? <laughs> uh, I found it really helpful, especially when, when I'm journaling. And you can do this on your phone or in your journal. But, you know, this happened this past week. Like, I had a good buddy of mine shoot me a text like, hey, can we connect? And I said, sure. But all of a sudden, I just started getting kind of triggered by it. I'm like, why, why am I feeling so triggered by, by this text message? And so, you know, I was just kind of thinking about it. I'm like, all right, let me, let me work through the questions. So what happened? Well, I got, I got a text message. Well, what did I feel? Well, I felt shame. That's kind of odd. Uh, by the way, the difference between guilt and shame is this. Guilt is, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. So I'm feeling like, man, like, what is wrong with me? Like, I'm defective. And, and I was trying to figure out, where is this coming from? And then I had to ask, what's the story that I'm telling myself? Well, the story I'm telling myself is maybe this person wants to meet with me because they're upset with me and they're angry and they want to cut me down. Uh, maybe I made a mistake and I felt like, man, I must be like a, a crappy friend. Like, gosh, like, I can't believe I keep dropping the ball here. And once I kind of got that story sorted, I'm like, all right, what does, what does the gospel say? Here's what the gospel says, that Jesus didn't just die for my sin. Hebrews 12, 2 says, he also died for my shame. You guys know that? That Jesus actually died to scorn your shame. He died to remove your shame. You don't have to be ruled by shame. You don't have to own shame. You can tell shame, shame, you can go back to hell where you came from because I don't need to walk in you. That's the power of the cross. That's the gospel. And finally, what is the counter-instinctual action I need to take? Well, sometimes if I get a text that triggers me, Maybe, I know you guys wouldn't do this, but what I do is I'm just not going to answer it right now. I'm just going to hold off, hold off. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to answer it right away. And so, yeah, let's meet up. And it was great. Like, I felt encouraged, and I felt blessed, and, and it was such a great meeting. It wasn't anything that I thought it was going to be. But that's how we transform the scripts in our life. That's how we take off the old and put on the new. It requires effort. Grace does not oppose effort. It opposes earning. You can't earn God's love. You already got it. 
You can't earn God's grace. You already got it. Now you got to walk in it. You got to take off those old patterns and put on the new. And this brings us to the fourth one, and probably the toughest one. One I don't think we can do in our own power, and that's this. It's to transform trauma through forgiveness. The most powerful thing about the Joseph story is how he forgave his brothers. He lost 13 years of his life because of what his brothers did to him. How do you you forgive that? Because Joseph's brothers felt the same way. Like, eventually, when when Joseph's dad, Jacob, died, they started freaking out again. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, Joe's going to have us killed now. Dad's gone. And so they kind of, you know, they kind of make up this deception, and Joseph sees right through it. And listen to what he says to his brothers. He says this. He says, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Can I, can I tell you something? I don't know if I could do that. There's people in my life that I'm struggling to forgive right now. Man, like, I'm like, Lord, can I get to that place? Like, it's tough. It's hard. Then Jesus says, no, it's impossible. You can't do it. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You see, one of the things, you know, whenever I teach people to read the Bible, you always have to ask, where does Jesus show up in the Old Testament? This one's a pretty easy one. He shows up in the life of Joseph. Joseph is actually a foreshadow or a precursor to Jesus. Because Joseph suffered so much pain for the salvation of that region through famine relief. Jesus Christ suffered and died for you on a cross, scorning your shame so that you could have relief from sin and death, so that you could be rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, so that you could have your sins forgiven, your shame eradicated your guilt taken away, your past redeemed. By the way, you know what's beautiful about generational blessing? It goes both ways. It doesn't just go down, it can also go up. You can actually be part of the redemption of your parents and grandparents when you bring Jesus into this situation. I don't know what your family of origin was like. I don't know how bad it was. Maybe some of you could say to me, Nathan, I could never forgive what my dad did to me. I could never forgive what my mom said to me. I just can't do it. And if we sat down for coffee and you kind of told me the situation, I would probably say the same thing. Man, like, I I can't imagine having to walk in forgiveness through that. But I just want to remind us of something, that forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. God has called all of us to forgive. Forgiveness is a decision we make to release ourselves of the pain. It doesn't mean you need to reconcile with that person. In fact, the best way to love them is probably from afar and set some boundaries. But you are called to forgive them. Because when you forgive, you set yourself free. And so I know that for some of you in here, when we talk about family of origin stuff, there are names that are coming to mind, there are faces that are coming to mind of people that God is calling you to forgive. And I have good news. You don't have the power to forgive. Jesus does. Maybe some of you are like, well, Nathan, I, I, I forgave that person, but why is it when I see them on Instagram, I get, I get angry again? Why is it when I see them at the store, like all that, all that hurt and all that pain comes back? Well, it's an opportunity for you to forgive at another level. See, forgiveness is ongoing. Maybe God will restore the relationship, maybe not. That's not up to you. Restoration is a two-part peace, but your part is to forgive so that that pain, that bitterness doesn't stick to you and doesn't get passed on to your kids, doesn't get passed on to your grandkids. 
you can literally change the legacy of your family. You don't change it, Jesus does. You bring your pain to him. You bring your shame to him. He does the transformation. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling to forgive somebody. If that's you, I'm just curious. If you just put your hand up, because I want to pray for you. If you're, there's someone in your life right now that you need to forgive, just go ahead and put your hand up. I got my hand up right now. I got a name that comes to my mind. Cool, I see your hands. You can put them down. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, they say that to err is human and forgiveness is divine, and that is, out of all the cliches, it's true. So God, we ask for the power to forgive today. Would you help us forgive, not just tacitly, not just surface level, but to actually forgive from the heart so that we can say like Joseph said, hey, what you had meant for me was evil, but God used it for good. You're forgiven. That's not something we can do in our own power, Jesus. Would you give us the grace that you died for to forgive? God, there are family members that have done and said things that are unspeakable and by the world's standards, unforgivable. But by the power of the cross, we can extend forgiveness and set ourselves free. Father, we want to walk in the fullness of your forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We pray that today's message encouraged and inspired you. If you live in the Williamsport region of PA, we'd love to engage you in person. You can find more information on service times, city groups, and our incredible kids and youth ministry at citylions.org. That's citylions.org.